Just when we're getting on our feet, you're ready to let it all go to hell. Arthur, for God's sake, do you expect me to give up my marriage? This is our lives you're playing with. That's very serious business for us. Can you understand that? I can understand that. And I can understand a great deal more. You've been playing with a lot of children's lives. That's why I had to stop you. I know how serious this is for you. How serious it is for all of us. I don't think you do know. You came here to find out if I made the charge. I made it. I don't want you in this house. again how she could see us. I was leaning down by the keyhole. There's no keyhole on my door. What? There is no keyhole on my door. This is Lee Gambon, and you're listening to The Locust Files here at Diabolique. Um, We are very lucky today. We have the excellent Jenny Olsen um, here as our guest. So just a bit about Jenny. Jenny Olsen is an independent writer and non-fiction filmmaker based in Berkeley, California. Her two feature-length essay films, The Joy of Life and The Royal Road, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and like her many short films, have screened internationally to awards and acclaim. Jenny's work as a film historian includes the Lamber, So the Lambda Award nominated the Queer Movie Poster Book and her many vintage movie trailer presentations such as Homo Promo and Afro Promo. Her film criticism has appeared in numerous publications including Filmmaker Magazine, The Advocate and the San Francisco Bay Guardian and she is currently a film columnist for Logo TV's New Now Next. Her reflection on the last 30 years of LGBT film history in the Oxford Handbook of Queer Cinema is forthcoming from Oxford University Press in 2020. Jenny served for more than a decade as director and marketing at Wolf Video, and she is currently co-director of The Bresson Project, devoted to restoring and re-releasing the films of pioneering gay filmmaker Arthur Bresson Jr. Jenny is a former co-director of the San Francisco International LGBTQ Film Festival, the oldest and largest queer film festival on the planet, and she co-founded the pioneering LGBT online platform PlanetOut.com, as well as a legendary queer brunch at Sundance. She's also the proud uh, founder, uh, sorry, proprietor of Butch.org. Uh, Jenny has been honoured by the San Francisco Film Society, Yerba Buena, Central for the Arts, Outfest, New Fest, uh, San Francisco Film Critics Circle, and the City of San Francisco for her creative writing and innovative non-fiction storytelling. She holds a BA in Film Studies from the University of Minnesota and is currently an independent consultant in marketing and digital film distribution. A 2018 McDowell Colony Fellow, Jenny is now in development on her third feature-length essay film, The Quiet World, and an essayistic uh, memoir of the same name. Amazing. (laughs) That is a a wonderfully impressive bio, Jenny. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Lee. (laughs) Happy to be here. Awesome. So my first question, I think I first sort of knew of your work from 
the homo promo. I've got that on video. I actually, there was a shot back in the day when you could rent stuff. I um, bought it eventually when the shops were all closing and I bought it from uh, Video Busters in Collingwood, which is a suburb here in Melbourne, and loved it because it had a whole bunch of trailers of films that I adore, um, such as Teen Sympathy and a whole bunch of other classic cinema stuff, and then, you know, more contemporary stuff as, as it goes on. I love it. So can you talk about that um, as a starting point? So how did that come about? Um, what was the curation process? How did that sort of become something that you're so well known for? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, homo promo. Um, so I started. I started collecting actual f- prints of thirty-five millimeter film trailers mm-hmm. uh, back in the late eighties, um, and I, I, I just I wanted to own film prints, and was it was that was what I could afford. Like you know, little trailers were they were like five bucks, five to $20 a piece, um, on the kind of collector's market at the time. And so I just started accumulating them, like buying them from projectionists all over the country and, uh, you know, kind of going through my list of what were the gay films that I knew of. And, um, you know, particularly the, the older ones, like mm-hmm. the children's hour and boys in the band and the killing of sister George. Um, and I particularly, I just loved how, you know, the films are one thing and then the trailers are kind of another thing, mm-hmm. the marketing of the films. Um, I eventually also went on to collect movie posters and kind of, you know, just got very into the, you know, the marketing aspect um, and uh, kind of what that says about, you know, really about what Hollywood in particular thinks of gay people and thinks that straight people want to see. Yeah, there's, there was always a great sensationalistic sort of aspect to a lot of the marketing. I remember the the trailer for the Children's Hour reads like a horror film. Um, it's like a witch hunt sort of film. And yeah. The film ultimately yeah, is, yeah. Exactly. Very sensational, very... Um, and, yeah, and, you know, truly an art form in itself. Um, and, and so Homo Promo was the first collection that I did, and then I went on to do a bunch of others I was kind of an addict actually <laughs> um, and I have hundreds of hundreds of them someday I'll do even more programs but um, but yeah homo promo um, so my friend Mark Finch who was the founder of the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival um, at in 1986 um, he, I, I had had a conversation with him about it and, you know, said I was collecting these and he, it was his idea, it was his idea to call it homo promo. What? Um, and, uh, you know, and he was basically like, you know, put it together as a program and I'll show it at London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. And so that was where it kind of premiered and then went on to tour the gay film festival circuit and, and it, I, I just love it because it's this kind of crash course in queer film history and, you know, you, you watch it and go, ooh, I want to see that, I want to see that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, and, um, yeah, and the so the original curated program, uh, 
all of those actual physical 35 millimeter trailers are now at the UCLA Film and Television Archive um, being taken care of there. Um, but of course, you know, these are the days of, well, before eBay, before YouTube, <laughs> before, <laughs> you know, uh, and there was some really, really amazing stuff and very rare stuff. Amazing. Cool. What are some and of your, f- oh, I- sorry. Can, well, can I just say that uh, one way that people can actually see Homo Promo um, is uh, through Canopy.com, um, Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y.com, which is a, a U.S.-Australian uh, streaming company um, that you can, anyway, you can access it there. Uh, they also have... Um, Afro promo, which is my vintage African American trailer program. Awesome, another awesome yeah. um, package. Um, so, what are some of your favorites um, growing up? Um, favorite trailers, actually. Let's stick to the trailers um, uh, of your favorite sort of queer themed films, and also um, uh, what do you see as the sort of what? What are some examples that sort of really don't sell the film at all, as as the film is actually. You know, it, 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 as you say, it's a different entity on its own. It's its own artistic merit. It's uh, It's got its own sort of life force, the trailer, as an art form. But what trailers do you recall not really selling the actual film in itself? So, for instance, say, for instance, something like, um, I don't know, God, uh, The Boys in the Band is quite an interesting example. That sort of just sells it as you know, um, this is not a musical, <laughs> you know, that kind of, and doesn't really give you much as far as the background to the story or whatever. It's just sort of like this kind of really avant-garde, um, it's like a experimental film in itself that, with the animation. And... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, God, it's been a while since I've watched them all, but I, and I, I'm not sure I have an answer to that specific question. I think I would say, um, one of my favorite <clears throat> trailers in Homo Promo is, <clears throat> excuse me, the trailer for um, a film called Some of My Best Friends Are mm-hmm. <laughs> um, from 1970, uh, which the, the film itself is set in a gay bar on, uh, it, it's Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, I think it's Christmas Eve. And um, it's a very, it's a <laughs> very kind of depressing sad the sad homosexuals yeah um but uh but although all of those things are so fun to watch now you know even though they're all painted a kind of dark portrait of being gay at the time but you know there's enough distance now to look back and and have them be interesting but uh uh some of my my best friends are the trailer is just a one long um tracking shot down the bar and then, and then these kind of, uh, you know, intertitles kind of saying, uh, well, characterizing it as this depressing picture. Um, uh, and then there are certain trailers that just are, are so, uh, artistically done. The children's hour trailer is one where, I mean, again, as, as dark as it is, um, it's incredibly well made. Um, the, similarly, the trailer for uh, it's a film called No Way to Treat a Lady mm-hmm. from 1967 with Rod Steiger as this um, like weird, psychotic, 
killer who dresses up in women's clothes um, and then tries to kill women. And it's very, you know, yeah, psycho kind of uh, thing. And But the, the trailer itself, the editing is just spectacular. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, I love... Um some of my best friends are. It's like AIP's um, response to the boys in the band. And it's a great cast as well. Carlton Carpenter's in there and Rue McClanahan pops up yeah. as the evil hag. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, Rod Steiger, really intense performer, always played scary characters, you know, whether it's Judd Fry in Oklahoma or The Illustrated Man or even him screaming in Amityville Horror. But I love him in The Sergeant, which is another sort of self-loathing um, entry. Exactly. In, yeah. Yeah, and the trailer for that is in Homo Promo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So just your childhood and growing up, um, what were the first sort of examples um, of queer characters or queer representations in cinema that you distinctly remember? Um, you know, you'd be watching a whole bunch of movies, you know, you're a cinephile from, you know, since you're, you're a child. Um, what, what, what were sort of the crumbs you kind of um, were accustomed to when you, when you were growing up seeing queer imagery on screen? Um, you know, it's hard to remember from my, like, young, you know, really being really young. I, mm-hmm. I, I watched classic Hollywood movies from when I was a little kid, like eight years old. I would stay up late watching um, you know, Fred Astaire and Jimmy Cagney and, um, and, uh, and I, I don't remember stuff from that, you know, from those younger days. I, the, the most significant film that I think of, and I was much older, I mean, I was, must've been 20 when I saw it, um, is Times Square from 1980, the Alan Moyle film. Um, with Trini Alvarado and Robin Johnson as teenage girls who escape from a mental hospital together and live, live in, on the pier in New York City, mm-hmm. um, and which is a kind of proto-lesbian film. Um, and uh, there was a lot of lesbian content that was cut out of it, um, but it kind of, you, you still can feel the... the the vibe mm-hmm. um and but I, I always think of that as a very formative film um where i uh, kind of for the first time you know just felt more of a, a sense of uh seeing myself on screen um i mean there are other examples of like i don't know like old jody foster movies or or, th- or things like like Tatum O'Neill and Paper Moon or, you know, that are less lesbian per se and more, you know, tomboy mm-hmm. gender stuff that, that, that felt very, you know, significant as well. Um, uh, and then I guess the, the actual lesbian portrayal that I do remember is a film called The War Widow mm-hmm. from 1976 that was on, uh, public television here in 1976, so I was 14, um, and that's a, a lesbian romance. Um, but yeah, but Times Square was an incredibly powerful film. I I own a 35 millimeter print of it actually. Oh wow! <laughs> and 
Um, and I did a lot of primary research on it. I went to the USC script library and found the original script and uh, kind of did a lot of writing about what was cut out of the film. Um, I interviewed the screenwriter and the director and the stars. And um, uh, it's a, it's a fascinating film. Yeah, it um, really is. And like, um, I love Trini. Have you ever seen, or do you know of the musical Runaways that she was in? Hmm, no. Oh, I'll send you a, a YouTube clip of them at the Tonys, and she does the lead vocal in a medley of the songs. So it's basically about teenage runaways um, of all ages, like ki- really young, actually, kids to, you know, teens, late teens, hmm. and it's about their experiences. And the woman that created this piece, Elizabeth Swardos, who just passed away recently, she basically workshopped a whole um, thing with a whole bunch of real-life kids who are runaways, and she worked them into songs, and Trini is just phenomenal in it she and her voice her singing voice is divine like she's amazing hmm. yeah I'd, I'd love to see that yeah um how much well, of the original script ha- so what what kind of lesbian content was omitted but what did you see in the in the original drafts um well i mean so they were they're they were teenagers like uh robin johnson's character is 16 and yeah. trini alvarado's character is 14 i think mm-hmm. and so it's you know fairly uh whatever innocent but um there's um (laughs) the best thing is i mean it's just it's much more clear that they have uh romantic feelings for one another they they uh and particularly that that robin johnson's character is infatuated with trini alvarado's character and that And, and you can still see it in the film as it is, including that at the end, you know, Robin Johnson or, or Trini Alvarado's character says, you know, I'm not like you, um, you know, I can't be like you. Mm. And there, are th- it's this great kind of, you know, you can read the dialogue as she's basically saying, I'm not queer. Um, there's a, but in the, the things that were cut there's a scene where robin johnson does a uh a little stick and poke tattoo wow. of that's like a uh pammy plus nikki in an in a heart um that you know is like that she loves nikki um trini's character mm-hmm. um there's a scene where they swim naked together in the river uh, in uh, there's a scene where there's another scene like a dialogue scene where she's kind of declaring her affection um, it's not I mean it's not like uh, there's not like a whatever a sex scene or a makeout scene or um, but it's much more direct that that Robin Johnson's character is in love with Trini Alvarado's character. Yeah, cool. That's um, awesome. Yeah. But I love uh, I love what we've got as well, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's clearly very much still there. Yeah. Um, it's such an amazing film. Uh, Kino Lorber, he, the distributor here, yeah. is working on uh, doing a restoration and a re-release. Yeah. Um, I think they're in the process of trying to find the best element. Um hopefully that will happen in the next year or so. Absolutely. Um, and we've 
we both work for Kino Lorber, so we'll get into that um, a bit later. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing about your involvement with one of my favourites, um, <laughs> which is cool. We'll talk about that. Um, but also, um, just going back to um, you talking about, well, we're both of us talking about finding, uh, you know, the queer characters and being used to sort of snippets of them growing up with, let's say, classic Hollywood. Do you, and you also mentioned the tomboy factor. One of my favourite things about tomboy cinema, the, the heterosexual tomboys were always sort of there. The, you know, the Doris Day films where you had, you know, um, On Moonlight Bay and By the Light of the Silvery Moon and Calamity Jane, where she played these kind of tomboys who had to, at one point, you know, quote-unquote, become a lady. Um, and, and But her sort of underlying kind of roughhousing sort of sexuality is still in there. It's still embedded in her being. I loved those movies. Did you like those kind of films as well? Um, or um, were they kind of, you know, something that you kind of gravitated towards or you found them interesting just to see the whole idea of gender politics and girls, um, you know, being quite tomboyish and then sort of having to sort of, you know, submit to femininity or become a girl, a lady, that kind of thing? Was right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm try- I can't quite think of, like, older titles, but... Um... Uh, but, but particularly, uh, you know, um, like Paper Moon or, mm-hmm. uh, Little Darlings actually, yeah. what a crazy, <laughs> weird thing where I, rem- I mean, I vividly remember actually sneaking into that because I wasn't 17 yet, um, you know, buying a ticket for another film and then, you know, at the multiplex, and going sneaking into it and um you know just this sense of both tatum o'neill and christy mcnichol seeming so dykey mm-hmm. and you know and yet you know the plot being that they're trying to lose their virginity to the guy <laughs> and and you know but but you know christy mcnichol in particular being such a dyke and you know and such a such a tomboy mm. um and the, the 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 weird it's such a great example of the that kind of weird um i don't know schizophrenic thing where you know a, a film plot is written as a straight plot and yet you're just the whole time going like this she's such a dyke and like this <laughs> this ostensible you know narrative is makes no sense <laughs> it's funny you bring um, that up with Christy McNichol. Like, if you look at her career and Jodie Foster, like Christy McNichol starts off as Buddy in Family, and she's a tomboy. She's a, a, a you know, she's so gay um, as a kid, and then you see her grab, you know, gradually get into films like White Dog, where she's more feminine, and then Empty Nest, and she's you know, you know, basically burying all the sort of dykiness, I guess. But then in her younger period, like Family, Little Darlings, and stuff. It's all there. It's really, and it's same as Jodie Foster. Like, Alice doesn't live here anymore. My God. <laughs> yeah, bad. yeah. Um, yeah, well, and... and what did I just... Oh, I just watched um, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, with my my uh, 17-year-old. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, which is also a Kino Lorber Blu-ray re-release. Yeah, um, and it's so great, and and I remember from childhood and just being like, oh my god, she's so amazing, and she's you know, 
so dykey and like the <laughs> very first scene when you see her walking and you're just like oh my god <laughs> like she's you know there goes my gaydar right. um and uh and she just has that yeah that energy and that independence and um and you know but then it in the case of the little girl who lives in LA and it had the overlay of her romance with um Scott Jacoby mm-hmm. and and this kind of weird sexualization of her as a girl and, and she's the character is like she's she's like 14 she's 13 mm. um but that, and, I mean that the whole know, point is Martin Sheen's the pedophile character and he's horrible right yeah Right. Although, you know, the good thing, it, it is actually quite cathartic that, like, Martin Sheen is such a creep, and she's so, it, it's so overt, and she is so, um, you know, gets, uh, you know, gets revenge on him, or mm-hmm. gets, you know, and is so actively like, you're an asshole, like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And so it's very, you know, it's uh, empowering in that sense. Um, but it's also, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, it came out the same year as Taxi Driver. Mm. And, and it, I mean, it does, obviously, it was a very different era where you could, you know, have these incredibly sexualized images of this 13-year-old girl. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, in a way that, there is a way that it's kind of getting away with that. Um, although, at least as a character uh you know she is um empowered you know and is i mean obviously well don't, i don't want to give spoilers but, <laughs> uh uh you know in and i mean she's so amazing in all of her roles across her entire career yeah um and also she can, she does um bugsy malone as Tallulah. yeah um, but, uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that kind of that role that she, that, that sort of archetype she played out, um, in that period of her career, but little girl lives down the lanes. Amazing. I'd like to interview Nicholas Gessner, the, the director. Um, mm. and he had interesting stuff to say about that. Cause I th- I feel like her relationship with Scott Jacoby is quite charming. There's a sweetness to it. They sort of, you know, mm-hmm. found each other. Yeah. But yeah. It's a, it's a cool yeah. Film. And very, um, you know, yeah, equitable or like, yeah. And she seems very, you know, empowered in it in this way that is kind of remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. So your favorite kind of stock um, lesbian characters, what are some of your favorites? Like, so there's, you know, things like that we talked about the tomboy. Then there's also the sort of predatory, very glamorous um, bisexual kind of characters that you find in like, you know, Morocco, uh, Dietrich in the tuxedo and Queen Christina with, um, Garbo, these kind of gorgeous sort of, you know, icons, um, Dracula's daughter, all those movies. Um, and then, you know, you've got things like the butch kind of women that came a bit later that, you know, that in the pre-code period as well, obviously films like ladies, they talk about, you have the, the butch woman in the prison and then later in films like caged and all that sort of stuff was really cool as well. And they populated sort of women domain, areas you know like prisons and reform schools and stuff like that which were really fun to watch um and then became these villains these sort of you know crow-like women these amazing characters 
um, or the tragic lesbian sort of characters, you know, like you mentioned, the children's hour, the sort of sad, sort of self-loathing ones. Um, and then the wave of lesbian vampires. What are some of your favourite sort of stock lesbian characters that people kind of, you know, probably criticise a bit <laughs> these days, but I love them. <laughs> so which, <laughs> what are some of your favourites? Um, well, I love that you mentioned Caged. Caged is, oh, yeah. is so one of my favourite films. Um, uh, and, I mean, Hope Emerson as the creepy mm. uh, prison matron. Um and uh, and Eleanor Parker's performance in it is so amazing. Mm. So how she kind of goes from this, you know, femi innocent to kind of butch, tough guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, although her character is not not necessarily lesbian, uh, but um, but she does have this, you know, incredible uh, evolution. Um, um, it's funny. I'm like, you know, now I'm like, kind of mentally picturing the cell, the cellular closet, um, the oh. book, you know, and kind of like, oh, what are what are the things? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think um, Queen Christina, you know, Garbo, so amazing. Oh, Sylvia Scarlet. I mean, yeah, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn and Sylvia Scarlet. It is remains like such an astounding film, um, and I I have a an original production still from that from that my stepfather had been a uh, usher at a movie theater in 1935 and 36, and so he had this collection of of eight by ten movie stills from pretty much every film released. Wow! In 35 and 36, and I I remember looking. At that in particular, and her, you know, drag is so incredible. She really looks like a boy. Yes, does. And and, and a, a very handsome boy. Um, and you know, and I mean, that is such an amazing film too. That it has the the kiss in it, where the the woman, you know, thinking she's a boy mm-hmm. kisses her. Um, and and then of course Cary Grant thinking she's a boy <laughs> and having the funny feeling about you. Um, and, and that sense, I, I love that, you know, there, there are these things where <laughs> I was talking to my 17 year old about it, how, how, you know, so much of the time you, you see, you see queerness in films and you think, you, you think to yourself like, oh, I'm queer. And so I just think everything's queer or I think everyone's queer. And then you realize no, actually, I am seeing correctly, and this was, you know, written by or directed by queer people who put that there, and it is there, mm. you know, and that George Cukor made that film. <laughs> like, right. It's it's not an accident <laughs> that it it feels, you know, queerer than, you know, whatever some other film that was not, you know, created by queer people. <laughs> right. And it's, I love those kind of gender plays where everyone's sexuality is on display and it's kind of this big blur. Um, and, if, you know, if you fast forward to something like Victor Victoria or Yentl or, you know, all those movies where characters are playing the the other gender or, they, or they're in drag throughout most of the movie, those kind of um, gender blurs happen. And you're right, everyone 
um, sort of becomes this, uh, uh, you know, queer and fluid in a sense. The sexuality becomes, you know, kind of uh, a fluid sort of expression and it's really wonderful to see play out on screen. Um, and, and they come at the cost of, you know, confusion or <laughs> misunderstanding or, um, you know, real feelings being suppressed or um, ignited. And it's really interesting to watch all that, the politics as well as the sort of, you know, the romantic interludes. It's all really lovely to watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, I just thought of something. Um, sorry, I'm That's just okay. a little rusty here. I had written, a, I wrote a piece years ago for a, an anthology on called Dagger on Butch Women, where I wrote a, a, whole, a kind of overview of butch characters on screen mm. and like talking about different kind of you know categories of you know tomboy butch and it, yeah like you know glamour butch and uh, uh, gender you know kind of transgender characters and um, cool but but uh but now I'm I'm blanking on all of it. <laughs> That's okay. You mentioned the celluloid closet earlier, um, which you know obviously is a a master work and so important and and so much an influence and has informed a lot of um, people's writing, including you know yourself. How when did you first discover that book and your relationship with that book and um, how important Vito Russo was to you as someone who was a film historian and and writer and critic. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, the cellular closet, the book it changed my life. I, I mean, I think it saved my life in a lot of ways. Um, I read it in 1986 when I was in college um, at the University of Minnesota. Uh, my film studies professor who uh, clearly n noticed something about me that I had not figured out yet. I, and I was 22 at the time, um, and I read it, you know, cover to cover, and <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> right, this is me. Um, so you came out through reading that, the book? Yeah, yeah, that was how I came out, um, and I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I couldn't, I mean, it, it's, it's funny looking back at pictures of me from when I was, you know, five years old, it was obvious that I was queer. And, and I, I, I always say like, I, I, I simultaneously knew and didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I think I was in denial basically, um, from, you know, that, yeah, I was not able to come out. Um, and had a, a rough teenage years of a lot of drinking and drugs and, and really sadly kind of wasted 10 years of my life until, uh, I, yeah, until I read the cellular closet mm. and, um, you know, integrated that information <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, quit drinking came out started the gay film festival in Minneapolis or a, a gay film series. Um, cause I, when I, I read the book and I was like, I want to see these films and, and I thought I'll bet other people want to see them too. And 
went to the student union and asked them if I could program a gay film series. And they were like, yeah, here are the catalogs for all of these uh, film distribution companies and, you know, go ahead and find them. And, and it, you know, yeah, totally changed my life and gave me a sense of purpose and, um, and yeah, that was how I came out and came into the gay community. Um, and so the series launched in January of 1987 with actually with, uh, Machen in uniform mm-hmm. from 1931, uh, sold out 300 people, you know, turned away people, Gee. um, huge, you know, just huge thing. And it was all, um, that was the beginning of my career as a, uh, queer film curator and, historian and writer and um really yeah and then i did eventually uh got to meet Vito and spend time with him and visit him in new york city and he came to minneapolis i got to be his projectionist for the his original clip show the cellular closet that he would tour with and show on 16 millimeter um and we got to be friends and um and he was my mentor. He was, um, yeah, absolutely transformative for me. Amazing. Yeah, that book is yeah. d- divine and what amazing man, what a legacy. Um, yeah. He sadly died before the documentary was made. Do you recall your first viewing of that and what were your thoughts on that the, the first time you saw that documentary? Um. Uh, the, so that's, it's funny, actually, I remember being at the Toronto Film Festival, it premiered, I think it premiered in Venice Film Festival in September of whatever year that was, 90, no, 96, maybe, and then, and then at Toronto International, and, um, I particularly remember, um, there was a press conference. They did a press conference with Lil- Lily Tomlin, mm-hmm. who did the you know did the voiceover for the film, and who was good friends with Vito, and who of course was closeted at the time. Mm-hmm. And the and in the press conference, um, it's so funny. Somebody asked her. I don't, I don't. I don't think they literally said, "Are you a lesbian?" But like basically that was the gist of the question and and the fire alarm went off (laughs) (laughs) i remember thinking like somebody was like okay guys stand next to the fire alarm if anybody asks lily tomlin if she's queer pull the fire alarm like it was it was hilarious and like you know it stopped the press conference and everybody had to leave um but uh, but I just, it, I mean, you know, it was, it was such an interesting thing that she, you know, just was not out at that time. I mean, and and even which is true of so many people, including Jodie Foster, hmm. you know, that it was something that everyone knew, or all the gay people knew, and straight people, you know, either didn't know or didn't care didn't care to know, didn't want to know, didn't, um, and, you know, and, and I mean, the, it's also, 
one has the sense that it was also understandable that it made your career harder and and also um you know that people deserve their privacy mm. um uh anyway <laughs> i was talking to my 17 year old about um jody foster and and we were saying how like oh my god she's so obviously queer and i was saying how it was only recently that she came out like it was like five years ago mm. and 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 sylvie my 17 year old was you know was just like really like and like but everybody knew that she was queer already right and i was saying uh talking about my my brother-in-law who who was like totally surprised when she came out <laughs> right and and you know sylvie was like how, really like how why would anybody be surprised um uh anyway but um the closet the cellular closet um but back to the film what an amazing film and so so incredible that they got you know all of those clips and mm. and and so amazing to see all those clips um and you know and then hearing people talk about uh things like the like the interviews with like shirley mclean and mm. um you know getting the backstory on on what it was really like um what an amazing film yeah absolutely and it's a beautiful combination of um, you know, critical analysis and production history. It's one of those great documentaries that really is a shining example of the healthy combination of both. Um, I think that's yeah. really important. That's to do with, you know, you know, the filmmaker's approach and also the talking heads they get in there, you know, and also the really interesting um, perspectives people had. One of my favourite things about that is seeing the sissy clip reel, which I love. I love those classic sissies from the 30s and 40s. Um, and then having Harvey Feierstein champion those stock roles, but then Arthur Lawrence hating them, you know, comparing them to like the step and fetch it sort of stock characters that gay, uh, that black, um, uh, characters got. So it's really yeah. interesting there. I love that kind of difference in opinion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of, I, uh, so I got, I got to be, a. A consulting producer on a new documentary that premiered at Sundance in January called Disclosure Trans Lives on Screen mm -hmm. um, that is uh, executive produced by Laverne Cox um, directed by Sam Fader who's an amazing uh, trans documentary filmmaker um, and uh, hopefully it'll be coming out in the next, by the end of the year, um, uh, you know, be made more widely available. Um, and, uh, but it's a kind of, it's, you know, like the, the trans cellular closet, basically. Okay. Looking, looking at the history of trans representation on screen in film and television and, um, amazing clips and, you know, similarly like looking way, way back, like all the way back at the kind of earliest portrayals. Um, and then up through, you know, contemporary imagery <clears throat> and, um, and just fantastic interviews with, um, both kind of actors, trans actors and directors and, um, 
historians and but also talking about how you know the i mean that that history is so much um a history of you know these kind of um negative images if you will uh and that uh but there's one of the interviewees talks about um you know how hard that is to to think like as a trans person growing up you know this is what you're seeing mm. is you know here are these trans women being murdered or uh you know these or humiliated or laughed at um and then on the other hand you know if those images didn't exist at all um how would you know how would i have seen myself mm. and you know what i mean so i think i mean obviously it would have been better if there were some some images that conveyed like this is a you know here's some dignity and some respect mm. um it's interesting uh, but yeah. you know but that if that was the world that we lived in that we grew up in yeah I, I, it's funny i did two audio commentaries for two trans film or trans related films one was uh, the William Castle homicidal, right? Which it has. Oh my gosh! Which, wow. Uh, yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> and then the other <laughs> film was Robert Altman's Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, um, where Karen Black plays the female version of Mark Patton, um, and she's the most together woman in that group, right? Um, Cher's got issues. Sandy Dennis has definitely got issues, um, and she sort of carries herself quite strongly, even though she's you know a damaged woman as well. But really complex character, whereas the homicidal character is this psychotic, you know, trans killer. But I love both films and both aspects. So it was really interesting sort of to discuss both films in that perspective because I personally sit on the sort of um, way of thought where film characters don't necessarily have to represent an entire group. But, you know what I mean? And also, um, you know, negative portrayals, are just as valid as positive ones and where which ones are positive and which ones are negative is up to the viewer um no one sees the same thing or the same film but i, I don't know i'm just i'm just sort of on the in the camp of everything's great <laughs> or not you know what I, mean? I don't know where, where do you stand there as far as like um uh, representation i mean if it's constant if it's the same thing over and over again and it becomes a trope um, and then it's the only thing that people have got to see, then that's a definite issue for sure. But when there's shades of grey and, you know, black and white and it's all... It, sorry, shades of grey exist, I think that's a positive thing. But where do you stand there? Like it's, it's Well, I one. think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's the sense of a cumulative mis- misrepresentation mm. that, you know, and particularly from, you know, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood in quotes, you know, the mainstream or the kind of, you know, uh, dominant um, imagery, you know, that obviously that, that veto documented in the cellular closet, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it reflects uh, a societal homophobia. Um, and, you know, there are equivalent uh, kind of analysis of, you know, African-American representation or Latino representation mm-hmm. or Asian American were any you know uh uh lesser represented folks and mm. and or you know or disability representation mm. um or women <laughs> <laughs> that min- that sake. minority 
you know, like, uh, and, you know, the sense of, like, who who is telling these stories and, like, do they give a shit, you know, or do they, you know, or what's, you know, patriarchal investment in, like, oh, here's an interesting story, like, men doing all kinds of things and they're, like... <laughs> the woman is there to prove that they're straight for a minute to have like a couple lines of dialogue and like, you know, but like, who cares, (laughs) you know, or, you know, or to be sexualized or victimized or whatever, um, you know, or either, you know, yeah. Transphobic, homophobic, racist, ableist, you know, you name it. Um, portrayals that, um, you know, understandably, uh, people are uh, unhappy about and are, and that we all deserve to see ourselves and, and to see, you know, it, it doesn't need to be, you know, we don't have to make it black and white that it's positive and negative, although with so much, you know, genuinely negative history um some positive is good (laughs) um and then you know but or some but like just like respectful um well-rounded or or complicated Mm. or um thoughtful characters who are uh real people um and you know but i agree like the point isn't to just be like uh, oh, here's this like, you know, simplistic caricature of a positive portrayal, mm. um, but, but to to have more nuance and and it's it's true that you know uh, filmmakers artists it's not their job to just make a positive portrayal it's their job to make a complex portrayal um, and to tell a story but I, yeah. and to tell a story and yeah but I but I do think you know that they're has been uh you know cumulative sense of that uh it was time to uh you know make up for some of that history and and um you know i think clearly we have had lots of great complex portrayals of lgbt um characters um i think there still is more uh, disrespectful representation of trans folks um, in in general than you know cis lesbian and gay folks per se um, in on screen. Um, but it's also but it's been amazing the incredible um, you know renaissance of trans representation in the last few years. Um, it's just amazing. It's know. funny. I, um, I, I recently rewatched this awesome exploitation. Well, it's you know it would be deemed an exploitation film by Doris Wishman, who is this genius. Mm. Um, Let me die yeah. a woman, and it's so sensitive. Yeah. It's re- and it's complex, and it's interesting, and it's political. Um, and there's that trans woman on. I forgot her name. Sadly, uh, um, but she talks about how she's more in, in. She has more in common with someone like Anita Bryant than you know a gay rights activist. So it's like, cool. This is interesting. This is great. You know, it's this kind of complexity and 
it just paints a picture of humans, right? It just it's it's a really interesting film. I and I, and it's sort of deemed or looked upon because it's a Wishman film and it's got that grindhouse mm. feel that it's an exploitation film, but I feel like it's quite sensitive, um, for sake of the Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That reminds me of um uh this short exploitation documentary that I kind of rediscovered and unearthed called Queens at Heart, um, which is also available on canopy.com and Vimeo and stuff. And, um, which, and which the Outfest, uh, UCLA legacy project did a restoration of it's this 22 minute, uh, interview with four trans women in yeah, 1967. So pre Stonewall. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very weird, I mean, it was it was a kind of little subgenre of the time that there were these films that uh, they they so that the interviewer is this creepy guy who's he's very like kind of lurid and sensational, <laughs> and he he asks them you know kind of inappropriate questions or but. questions that seem offensive, and yet they are incredibly um candid and they have this sense of dignity that comes through and you know we we get to see these trans women talking about being trans women in 1967 it's amazing Mm -hmm. um and um but but i i think you know looking at it as a film historian um it is part of this genre at the time where in order to tell that story in order to 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 convey that imagery it had to be framed in uh to reflect kind of the attitude the the attitudes of the time um Mm. you know like and and it it has this kind of schizophrenic quality to it where like the the guy he's expressing both kind of homophobic and transphobic things but then in the end he actually says um something like uh about these people who are we to judge Mm. and and so it is simultaneously you know it's saying multiple things um and there are a lot of there are a lot of films like that there's this whole kind of set of um they're like these kind of sex documentaries. Yeah. I don't know if you know. Yeah, these, you the, know, white, like the white coat films, yeah. Pornography in Hollywood, por- you know, where it's like, this is a documentary, but really it's just an excuse to show pornography. <laughs> oh, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. Like Labyrinth of Sex and stuff like that. I love that one. That's yeah. the one with the um, all the taboos, like the necrophilia. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. But, but, you know, it's quote-unquote educational. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, you know. Like, oh, yeah, I was just really interested in this. This is so educational. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but it's inter- It's just such an interesting time, you know, of, yeah. like, the, the creativity to uh, to get these things across. Absolutely. Um, and just going yeah. back to your point of what we were talking about with representation and stuff, what I loved about Vito Russo is, and, I've, you know, I've got some of his lectures on tape, um, bootleg tape, and it's like he opens them usually with, this is from the perspective of someone who really loves movies. And I, that's what I really, my heart goes out to. I love that because it's about, and yourself as well, Jenny, your love for cinema, I feel like transcends all that stuff. And it sort of 
it brings it all in and it brings it into perspective. So to champion all these movies, a lot of sort of unenlightened folk might sort of see as problematic, which is a word that gets friggin' thrown around every left, right and centre these days, um, probably misses the point. You know, you can love, you know, Johnny Guitar um, and you can love Mercedes McCambridge in, you know, in that horrible role in um, Touch of Evil and you can love yeah. all this stuff. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's film, it's art, it's part of a sort of, you know, a fabric of, of creation and artistic endeavor and, and, um, expression. Um, and it doesn't have to sort of hold any kind of responsibility. Um, but then it does. So it's a, it's a complicated thing, but it's also, I don't know, for me, I just love the fact that, you know, someone like Russo really did champion and celebrate cinema and all film. And like, I loved his love for, um, films that weren't. Uh, overtly gay, but, you know, had probably a camp, a camp sensibility or, you know, that kind of thing is all sort of interwoven. I think it's ultimately people who just love cinema can then talk about other things and it sort of is like this avalanche effect. And I think that's something that you do so beautifully with your work and your writing. It just, it's, it's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Accomplishment. And I'm very, very, you know, honoured to know your work. It's just, it's stunning. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so going into your work at the moment, you have dedicated a lot of time with um, the works of Arthur J. Bresson and the beautiful release of Buddies, which I feel is one of the first or earliest or AIDS films. I mean, there was an early Frost on television. Is this is Buddies one of the earliest? Buddies is the first, it is actually, the first. Right. Um, narrative film about AIDS. Um, it, it was released couple months prior to an early frost um and of course an early frost was a made for tv mm -hmm. movie um i mean of course an early frost was seen by a lot more people because it was a mainstream film mm -hmm. um but yeah buddies came out in in 1985 and um and played theatrically and was actually was released by um new line cinema um when it was a much smaller company it was um and uh, um, and it's a beautiful film. It's such an amazing film, and um, you know it's very early days, and very uh, you know this was like it was released when it came out. It was still before uh, Ronald Reagan had uttered the word AIDS mm. in public, um, and it was you know well before ACT UP and well before. Um, you know, uh, AZT, and um, you know, it was a, it was, it was a time. It was a, and uh, and it, it's amazing to see the film now. It has this almost documentary quality about it because it it was made at that time, and and it's such a kind of raw portrayal of. Uh, it, also that it's it's a two-hander I mean mm -hmm. there are two it's just two actors the the um, Jeff Edholm plays the guy who's dying of AIDS <clears throat> and David Schachter plays his buddy and that it's you know all this very simple uh, conveyed dialogue sequences and um, really masterfully done um, and but you feel the um, palpable sense of we're in the middle of this crisis mm. 
and uh, Jeff did go on to die of AIDS um, a couple of years later, as did Arthur Gresson. Um, he died in 1987. And, um, yeah, it's an amazing mm-hmm. film to look at now. Um, and the, the restoration was done by a company called Vinegar Syndrome. Mm-hmm. They did a beautiful new scan from the negative, and um, we got to do uh, some festival release two years ago, um, and it showed at the Museum of Modern Art and, um, you know, got a lot of really great response and uh um and it's nice that it's available kind of everywhere now digitally um and we're we're in the midst of kind of working on arthur's other films um his two early adult films which they kind of straddle um I mean, they're definitely adult films, but they have a lot of narrative aspect to them. And so they're kind of pre, you know, they, they feel like early gay indies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Passing Strangers from 1974 and Forbidden Letters from 1979. Um, they are both, we have the restorations done. They're really beautiful 2K uh, scans and... Um, I'm pretty sure that they will be available in June on uh, a pink label, which is, it's pinklabel.tv is a really great queer adult um, streaming channel or platform. And uh, uh, we're in the middle of kind of making that happen. So That is awesome. and, and, And those have both, been completely unavailable i mean they they were released on uh beta in Mm. you know for consumer home video in the late 80s um or the mid or early 80s um and uh have been unavailable since then um so it's super exciting and they're they're really really both wonderful films awesome well good work well done to you and your team um, the, Thank you. So AIDS representation is interesting because um, I'm currently at the moment doing a book on very special episodes on TV sitcoms and it's funny when you talk about AIDS in that, res- in that respect because most of the times it's either an AIDS scare or it's a child with AIDS. It's never really the gay male um, disease um, or even intravenous drug use or sex work. That's seldom discussed in these episodes. And the one episode that really does tackle AIDS head on as a gay male disease or a disease that affects, affects the gay men and still does and affects everyone else, um, is Killing All the Right People from Designing Women, which is an amazing episode. Do you remember that episode? I don't. Ah, oh, it's stunning. So what happens is a young man um, comes into the women, the, the ladies of um, uh, the Designing Women themselves, and he wants them to design his funeral. Um, so And it was based on... Um, um, Linda Bloodworth Thomason, the creator of Designing Women, her mother was dying of AIDS, um, and she and when she went to visit her, she um, overheard some orderlies saying, um, "Oh well, the one thing the AIDS has got going for it is it's killing all the right people," and she took that home with her, and yeah, very powerful, full-on statement. So she wrote that not only for her mom and her as a tribute to her mother who was dying of AIDS from a blood transfusion, but a tribute to all these people who were losing their lives to this plague. 
Um, and it's a really powerful episode. Really, really beautiful stuff. Um, but as far as film goes, yeah, Buddies is one. There's also An Early Frost. Um, there's also Parting Glances. Um, you get a whole bunch of TV uh, after-school specials. But I was interested in your uh, your um, impression of, say, Hollywood's response to the AIDS crisis that Vito Russo would talk about, where it wasn't um, an overtly um, an overt representation, but actually like a coded thing. So films like um, uh, The Fly um, from Cronenberg and films like Fatal Attraction, where Glenn Close is kind of like this this disease, this, you know, this, this virus that attacks this family. What are your thoughts there on the analogy of, of AIDS in Hollywood? Because Hollywood's so scared of this disease for many years. It was the Indies doing it, you know, representation. Right, right. Well, I mean, you did at least get, um, you know, Philadelphia, yeah, right? eventually. And, yeah. um, um, uh, well, my friend... Mark Finch did a whole, he did a whole series actually at the, at the National Film Theater in, in London of, of those films, the kind of like, especially the kind of horror films, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as metaphors for, uh, uh, for AIDS. Um, I, uh, feel like I should have something smart to say about it, but I can't actually think of anything. Um, (laughs) clearly you've been thinking about it uh, in your recent uh, work it's just Um, it's it's fascinating that something like buddies exists um, thank god and then those sort of you know metaphor films are sort of happening at the same time it's like you know people too scared to sort of admit things and that's really interesting to me Um, but but I like it I like that they exist as well I'm a big fan of Coded stuff. <laughs> yes. And metaphor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the recent uh, work you've done is for Kino Lorba, which is a wonderful company. We all love Kino Lorba. They bring out such beautiful works, stunning films. Um, and it's Machen in Uniform, which is just a remarkable film. Can you talk about that, what you've done for that restoration and how you got involved? And that film in general, tell the audience what that film is about. <laughs> sell it to um, sell it to them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yes um i mean so mansion uniforms from 1931 german film and is generally considered to be the first uh lesbian feature um there were films with uh, lesbian characters that existed prior to mansion in uniform but uh uh, but this is, you know, the the actual plot is a, a girl who uh, has a crush on or falls in love with her teacher at a, a girls' boarding school. Um, and I did, so I, uh, Kino Lorber asked me to do the audio commentary for the Blu-ray release, which is coming up. Um, I think actually they're going to be doing a streaming quote unquote, you know, theatrical release in June, um, through their platform, the Kino Lorber platform. Um, and then the, you know, home video digital release will be in July. Um, kind of, I would imagine it'll be available everywhere. Um, and it's a beautiful, uh, new restoration. And, um, I did a ton of research and, uh, 
stuff to do the the commentary um uh including i think some of the most kind of interesting things are um and and one thing in particular that makes the film less creepy is that uh herta tile who plays the the girl whose name is manuela um she's supposedly in the plot of the film she's 14 years old but actually as an actress she was 22 okay that does make um, it less creepy <laughs> which which was the same age as her teacher frau von bernberg um who's played by dorothea vick um and so you know they have this infatuation going on and they are both 22 mm -hmm. um which helps you know make it yeah make it seem less creepy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but oh, it's such a great film uh, on so many levels. Um, it's an all-female cast. It was written and directed by women. Um, the writer, um, uh, Krista Winslow, was a lesbian. Um, and <clears throat> there's some great um, research that's been done over the years. There was, in particular, there's a great interview with Herta Thiele that was done in the early 80s um, where she gives a lot of the backstory of the shooting and um, and you know just the intense um, time and like such an interesting time it was made in 1931 which is, is you know it's hard to re remember the fact that this was Weimar Berlin um, it was a really incredible time for gay and lesbian culture. Mm. Um, and it, it, it makes me think of how when we watch pre-code films mm -hmm. and we go, we're like, what? They're talking about all this stuff like that, you know, post-code wouldn't get talked about, you know, and we think like you would never have portrayals of particularly more gay stuff or sexual stuff. Um, and, um, but Weimar Berlin was a very open, uh, progressive time for gay and lesbian people. And so, you know, that's the backdrop that the film is made in. Mm. And then, you know, but within a year, so it comes out in Germany at the end of 1931, about a little more than a year later in January of 1933, um, Hitler's appointed the chancellor and like, you know, it's the beginning of the rise of, of Hitler and, you know, the destruction of, of certainly all of, you know, gay and lesbian culture, but everything else. Mm. Um, and the film itself is this kind of, um, I mean, in addition to having this, I mean, the, the lesbian love story is a, is both, a lesbian love story and also a kind of um, metaphor or critique of uh, the uh, kind of fascist culture mm -hmm. of the of of the time you know that's kind of rising up um, and is a you know strident political critique of what's happening in Germany at that moment um, so it's really chilling to watch even more so given the current moment that we're in mm. um, particularly here in the u.s um 
and just the sense of you know what uh, the oppressiveness of the culture um, politically. Um, anyway, it's an amazing film, really amazing film. Absolutely, yeah, def- yeah. definitely. Um, the the other aspect to your career as well is um, the bringing in you know, connective tissue to different films as well, to contemporary cinema, which I find really interesting as well. So something like Machin and Uniform, you're able to sort of, you know, relate that to something that's more contemporary or tying it all together. So there's this nice trajectory um, that sort of does loops and circles and sort of goes back. Um, And that's really fascinating as well, the whole idea that certain aspects to contemporary cinema does reflect themes and tone of previous films, you know, classic cinema. Um, can you give me some examples of contemporary queer-themed films that kind of hark back to, you know, classic cinema that is formative? For instance, you know, I don't know the wave of um, the the kill kill them or cure them, you know, films that happened in the '60s, for instance, like The Fox and stuff like that. Um, do you see that happening again, or is there like a, an anecdote or a, or some kind of response to that? Is that some that something you see in the wave? of films and film cycles? Hmm. Um, <laughs> there's so many things where I'm like, can I, how, do I have an intelligent answer for that? <laughs> I'm like, I can't, I'm trying to think of a, uh, I mean, the, well, I don't know, the, the one thing that comes to mind as you say that is, um, the favorite Mm -hmm. um as a wonderful kind of i don't know now i feel like it i don't know it goes back to these kind of uh oversimplified ideas of positive and negative portrayals um where you know if we saw the favorite whatever 50 years ago it would seem like oh this is this negative portrayal but now it seems like it's just really fun right (laughs) yeah interesting um, uh over the top um and and you know part of it is that what what things are better in real life if you will um (laughs) (laughs) uh and so we can you know yeah have have more fun with it although it well the thing the other thing that comes to mind um do you remember Notes from a Scandal? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, you know, which is like, so it was like maybe 2009. Um, like uh, Judy Dench and um, Kate Blanchett. Or no, not Judy Dench. Uh, what is it? Uh, anyway, but it, 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 it was such a it felt very killing of sister George, very mm. like that kind of, um, uh, what's the word? Lecherous, lesbian, creepy. Um, like really like, haven't we come farther than this? That, <laughs> the, and, and I mean, it was, mainly, it was but, Dench. It was, I'm sure it was her. Judy Dench. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, but it's interesting to think of like that in relation to the favorite where, like, and it, it didn't, you know, it had this feeling of like, okay, she's this lecherous, creepy, awful lesbian. And, uh, 
and it just felt awful. Mm. Whereas, and kind of irredeemable in this way of like this, I am not enjoying this in any way. And like, it just feels bad. Whereas the favorite, you know, you could say like, oh, these are also kind of creepy, weird characters, but like, <laughs> but I'm enjoying this. Right. There's like, a, there's you know, a... it's like, the, uh, you know, how do you kind of put a finger on like, wh- why is that, you know? Um, and I just, I, I think I am, I guess I think of it as having to do, something to do with the spirit of, of the storytelling and, uh, why, you know, why are you telling us this story or what is the quality behind it? Um, right. and just, you know, that the favorite is like, oh, let's just have some fun with this. Um, um, or even, you know, or something like, can you ever forgive me? Like you wouldn't necessarily say um you know in terms of whatever again like quote unquote positive portrayals you know melissa mccarthy isn't exactly um whatever she's this kind of also kind of crazy horrible character and yet um it's it's I don't know. It's interesting. You know, we still have sympathy and, uh, and, but fun or, yeah, you know, absolutely. like it's, uh, it's funny. Cause I remember when it, Carol, it, when Carol came out, um, everyone mm-hmm. was sort of raving about that. I saw it and I thought, okay, yeah, it's a pretty looking film. Thank God it's shot on film. That's one thing going for it. <laughs> Cause I don't really watch much contemporary stuff, but um, I watched it and go, oh my God, the Kate Blanchett character's <clears throat> kind of a nuisance in this young girl's life, like this young artist. And I don't, I don't know. I just saw her like a kind of, um, uh, descendant of characters like, um, George, Sister George, but I love Sister George. Like, oh my God, I could watch her all, Meryl Reed is just freaking marvelous. And that character is amazing because she's so unapologetic about her sexuality and she's, you know, this freaking amazing, you know, um, diva really, who is forced to become invisible. But I thought it's still a manipulative character. She's still kind of manipulating the, the, the young lover, etc. And I thought Carol was doing the same thing, but people kind of revered that and thought it was, you know, romantic and lovely. And that's fine. But I just saw correlations there. I saw, you know, manipulative older woman to a younger girl who's sort of blossoming and coming into her own. Um, so it's weird, it's weird. People's perspectives change and they, you know, a lot of, you know, audiences who flock to see certain things, you know, just, you know, to talk about them at the water cooler the next day will ignore older cinema or dismiss older cinema because they think older cinema is irrelevant, which Mm. is absolutely fucking wrong. Um, so that's something that I've always sort of, you know, fought against. I'm like, no, 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 don't champion Call me by your name. Fuck that for off for one second and watch and watch. Um, you know, Death in Venice. You know, it's just that you know. So it's that whole thing where you're just sort of screaming at these people because they're not watching enough films, especially enough old films. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, some of the I just want to sort of throw out some titles, um, lesbian themed films that are some of my favorites that I always go back to as comfort movies, and I want to hear your thoughts on them. 
Um, some of them will be uh, the lesbian plot will be centric to the plot to the film, and some is just sort of an addition. But one of my favourites is um, Walk on the Wild Side, where Barbara Stanwyck's the madam, and she, you know, keeps um, Capuchin, and she has a sort of um, you know, kept a kept woman sort of thing, and keeps her from her lover, her male lover, Lawrence Harvey. Um, so yeah, what's the, what's your thoughts on that one? Did you do you love that one? Uh, okay, now we're gonna like enter into the true confessions. Uh, oh, <laughs> I have not, I have not seen it. Oh, you need to. So, I think you love and, it. And now I'm gonna be like, here I'm making notes, <laughs> things that I need to add to my list. Okay. okay. Yes. Second one. All right. Good. Yeah. Good start, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> the second one. Um, the fox. Oh God, the fox. I I feel like the fox is, I, I, basically the worst lesbian movie ever made. <laughs> like, it really is the the hardest to watch. Um. And the, I mean, it's very, it's kind of quintessential, like what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, quote unquote negative portrayals. And, um, uh, and, and the sense of, you know, as a, for a lesbian audience to watch it, um, you know, to like at least something like Killing a Sister George, a lesbian audience can watch it and, and get things out of it that are pleasurable. Um, I mean, there's plenty in it that is just creepy and awful and hard to watch, but um, but it has redeemable things in it. And the fox is just irredeemable. Um, although, as I say that, then I think like, okay, well, um, the actresses are beautiful. Mm-hmm. But the... Um, but just the, the, the luridness of it and the, you know, this, the, I don't know, I guess you'd kind of say, you know, male gaze or, you know, male heterosexual uh, perspective is so dominant. And, and it's, yeah, mm. I, I hate that movie. Okay. <laughs> um, but you're a fan of Sandy Dennis and, and Susanna York. And, uh, Susanna York. What's her name? Uh, Susanna York is killing Sister George. Um, the Fox is Anne. What's her name? Oh, Anne Highwood. Yeah, that's right. Who's also amazing in um, I Want What I Want. Yes, I think is the yes. Trans- what a film! Yeah. It's an amazing film. Okay, um, the next yeah. one. Um, so you're talking about male gaze. This kind of might fit into that, but it's um, personal best. <laughs> <laughs> Personal best, I was one of the first films that I saw. It was kind of the first film I saw as I was trying to come out, um, and uh, and lo- I loved it seeing it in 1982. And I, I, I remember thinking, I was like, "Oh my God, Marilyn Hemingway is such a great actress," <laughs> and. I watched it years later and was like, wow, Mary Hemingway is not a great actress and, um, and it is not a great film. Um, and yet, and this is something <clears throat> that I've experienced over the decades in my, particularly when I was at Wolf Video um, doing 
I was the VP of marketing and, uh, you know, the most like mediocre films people would, would write and say, this is, you know, oh my God, such an amazing film. It's so important. And you realize that it is in a lot of cases, just the first queer film that someone sees has such an impact on them that like even the most really truly mediocre films uh, just are so meaningful and and personal best was that film for me (laughs) um and um i mean i do you know i i think you know it also has that kind of quality to it of that uh what's her name patrice donnelly is Mm. i mean this is such a true of so many films patrice donnelly is the you know quote-unquote real lesbian Mm. and and mariel hemingway is you know just kind of passing through and you know eventually will become you know this the the, the phase will be over and you know she goes off with the the guy the the water polo player (laughs) um and you know which uh you know, obviously it was a common trope. Um, and, you know, but at least in the, in the course of it, we got, you know, some hot scenes with the two of them and, and that, you know, definitely worked for me at the time. So, um, a film that sort of, um, I guess white or straight washes, possibly it's a good term for it. Um, the lesbian Mm. content is, um, Fried Green Tomatoes. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I love that movie, and I mean, I I think the queerness is definitely in there, but it's you know obviously very subtle and. Um... You know, it's interesting. Like that is another film that people often cite as like their favorite lesbian film or you know greatest lesbian film, and <clears throat> I I should probably see watch it again. I remember thinking like, really, that was lesbian, like like. <laughs> and I think, yeah, you know, that it was very uh, thinly or whatever, very minimal in in its characterization. And that I think, you know, as is true, I, I think one of the reasons it was so popular and that people cite it as, as such a significant lesbian film is just that it had big stars in it it was a bigger movie Mm. than you know any of the dozens if not hundreds of of smaller lesbian independent films that just people didn't see um you know like for the longest time like the birdcage is people's like you know the most the best gay film which is it is a great gay film, but it, part of the reason that it's so popular is that it's such a it has movie stars in it. It's mm. a Hollywood, a big Hollywood movie. Um, anyway, so Fried Green Tomatoes, like you know, I'm kind of like, yeah, it's okay, but like I don't think of it as like this big lesbian movie. Um, the other the other film that people mention a lot is um, Kissing Jessica Stein. Um, as this like great lesbian movie and but which also had like a pretty major release for being actually a relatively smaller film like didn't have big movie stars in it at the time um but i always hated that film that like the 
premise of it, like it or they're that she's straight. Right. Like it's not really and and in that sense, like to me, it was never really satisfying as a lesbian film. Like I want, you know, lesbians who are lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Anyway. Yeah, on that topic, it's interesting when there's like um, a lesbian scene uh, for a heterosexual character. Um, one that I remember as a kid standing out for me quite quite big um, was in The Rose, where Bette Midler's um, lover, Sandra McCabe, who actually is in one of my favourite eco-horror movies called Dogs from 76, one of her only other titles, <laughs> other credits. But she pops up as Bette Midler's lover, um, a one-time lover, and they have this um, romantic sort of interlude, and then um, Frederick Forrest's character comes in and goes crazy. Um, and I remember Vito Russo, Russo's writing saying, you know, Bette Midler spends the entire movie, you know, flirting with other men, and, you know, she's very heterosexually promiscuous, and he's fine with it, and it's only when he sees her kiss a woman that he reacts violently. Uh, I remember that's, that's sitting with me. But do you remember scenes in movies where it's pretty much a health, uh, sort of a, a heterosexual... Um, film, and then all of a sudden this kind of lesbian subplot comes in or um, a lesbian mm. character's kind of tossed aside or discarded. I remember, what's it, Lilith, that film with Warren Beatty, the lesbian, mm. you know, and um, uh, even the James Bond stuff, there's, you know, I think Pussy, Pussy Galore um, has a lover that's, you know, right. discarded. Do you remember seeing that growing up and... Yeah, seeing that sense of, oh, okay, there's these kind of lesbian nuisance characters <laughs> that come in. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm trying to, I mean, the, as you talk about that, I, I think of um, actually kind of the better version of that being um, uh, Silkwood. Oh, yeah. Um, with its share and Meryl yeah. Street, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, of like this, Big stars. this little side thing and but but like well done you know um or um but and also then now i'm trying to remember what if it's you know good or bad of isn't it in manhattan that woody allen's uh or am i totally mixing this up that meryl streep his ex-wife has a girlfriend now um I can't remember. Or else I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> but um, uh, there is that, you know, the the whatever, it being nice to have little, you know, kind of throwaway characters that are, but that are well done, you know, even though it's like unsatisfying because you want to see more of them. But right. <laughs> um, um, anyway. And there's also that weird trope that goes on where um, uh, if a woman... Um, quote unquote becomes a lesbian it's a statement on the man she was with it kind of undermines the man it's like he's he's so crap <laughs> that she right. has to go to a woman like that's right and that it's always it's always about the man yeah right um, what are you, who are your favourite um, lesbian artists like behind the camera throughout history you've had, you know you've mentioned um, the screenwriter of Machen in Uniform and there's obviously mm. wonderful people like Dorothy Arzner and but also right. um, even like stars like um, people like Spring Bington and um, uh, oh. Tallulah Bankhead and oh. yeah um, uh, well it's great that you mentioned of course Dorothy Arzner um, I was just having a 
exchange with someone about um, Craig's wife, uh, the Arsner film from 1935 or 36, um, which is the, you know, precursor of the uh, Harriet Craig, the Joan Crawford um, version. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but anyway, Rosalind Russell is Craig's wife and it's directed by Dorothy Arsner. And it's, uh, it's a really great film um, that is this kind of the horrors of heterosexuality. I programmed it when I was at Frameline in the early 90s. Um, I love, you know, looking at things like that where, yeah, where you have a lesbian director or, or star, but the film, the content isn't actually queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, yeah, seeing the, the queerness in it. Um, you know who is amazing and who and who is also like amazing to look at as a queer uh, star is Jean Arthur. Um, which the, the Criterion um, channel has a Gene Arthur series right now, or whatever they've, you know, programmed a bunch of Gene Arthur films. And um, I mean, I think she's probably best known for uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's always this kind of, yeah, quirky, funny, whatever. Uh, I mean, straight, her, you know, her characters are straight, but she was a lesbian. And um, uh, I got to do some research on her, um, her later years. She lived with her longtime companion in um, Carmel here in California, Northern California. Um, anyway, I, I really like her and, I mean, she was very much not out um there's a great bose hadley book called hollywood lesbians that mm. where he interviewed all those folks including like spring byington and um um what's her name who played indora on bewitched um agnes moorhead agnes moorhead um and uh patsy kelly mm. and like so, I mean, there, Patsy Kelly's was, amazing. Patsy Kelly was out, you know. Right. That, yeah. Which is... Uh, and and it's, it, it is interesting. Like, she seems like such a dyke when you see her yeah. in, in stuff. And, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just love the, the connect. Like, I just love um, the sort of solidarity between all these artists and sexualities kind of not even brought up. Like, I love the friendship that Patsy Kelly would have with someone like Ruth Gordon, you know, as straight mm. woman and a lesbian are just mates and that, you know, nothing's ever an issue. It's just, that's cool to me. I love that. Cause it's just, it's about craft and who cares, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a really nice thing. Cause I feel like there's a whole sense of, um, people looking back and thinking, you know, Oh, this person mustn't have been friendly to that person. And, you know, they were different to them, so therefore blah, blah, blah. But in a lot of cases, they were all working together. Um, obviously, yes, of course, the end product's going to be very sided to white and straight and male. But there is this kind of community that was there. Um, and I think people sort of need to see that because it's, it's, it's quite an interesting, you know, mm-hmm. thing to sort of revere and, and champion. But, yeah, it's beautiful stuff. 
classic cinema, huh? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so great to, to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. Um, and we'll all look forward to that Matron in Uniform release, which looks amazing. And what's on the agenda for you coming up for the rest of the year? Um, let's see. Uh, I mean, I'm just continuing to do, you know, writing for uh, newnownext.com, kind of reviewing current, you know, upcoming releases um, of this piece coming out in the Oxford Handbook of Queer Cinema, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, and uh, actually the big other big thing, I got to be a archival producer on a series that will be out on HBO Max towards the end of the year called Equal. Mm-hmm. That's a four-part LGBT history documentary series kind of looking at queer American history before Stonewall. Cool. Um, and that will be exciting. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, I think that... Well, my... <laughs> My one other really exciting thing that I'm I'm anticipating is I got to do. Do you know the Criterion Closet, the the Criterion Collection, the fabulous DVD, Blu-ray yeah. release company? They have this thing where they invite people to go into. They have a closet where they have all of the DVD releases that they've done over the years. Right. Yeah. And you and you get to like pick you know pick a few favorites and take them home with you and, and talk about them and they, but they videotape it and they put it on their YouTube channel. Right. And I, I got to do that in January and um, hopefully they'll be, I'm hoping they'll put it up maybe in June for pride month, but, um, cool. what but did I got you choose? to kind of pick out, they, they have a lot of really great stuff. Like they did a recent Blu-ray release of desert hearts mm. um, that they have uh, my beautiful laundrette um, times of Harvey Milk, um, uh, Chantal Ackerman stuff. Um, anyway, uh, that was a that was a high point high point of my year so far. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, um, oh. but yeah, and I'm I'm uh, always available at butch.org. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot, Lee. How did it feel going to the games, winning two gold medals? Would you lie to me and tell me it was worth it if it wasn't? What about you? Can you go to Moscow next summer? I want to know exactly what's wrong. Look around you. Look at everybody. Now imagine how many bodies you all buried to get here. Games. The chapel and the discus, the shop, their weapons. Don't kid yourself. You're here to kill anybody that gets in your way and all the rest is boom. I could have been a man's coach. Do you actually think that Chuck Noll has to worry that Franco Harris is going to cry because Terry Bradshaw won't talk to him? Jack Lambert can't play. His mouth blood hurt his feelings. Lynn Swan is pregnant. Rocky Blyer forgot his tampax. Oh. 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 Oh.
scares you more, getting beat by Tori Skinner or beating 